0: Gracious and loving God, we pray that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth might be pleasing to you and might speak to us this morning a word that we might hear and might take root within our hearts, that we might be your love in the world. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So this morning we continue our sermon series on Unraveled. Uh, So our third week of doing it, we began by talking um, about the uncertainty and the different feelings of being unraveled that we have in our lives. And last week, we talked about um, that Peter kind of stepping out, but we talked about the various ways that we find ourselves with that same sense of uncertainty. This morning, we have an obscure scripture. In fact, it's a scripture that brings to mind a lot of the feelings that people dislike about the Old Testament. Oftentimes, as a pastor, I hear people say, I like the New Testament, but the Old Testament, well, it's got all sorts of things that I don't like. It's got the long words that no one can pronounce. It's got the uh, polygamy, and it's got also human sacrifice, and it's got all these things that people have an adverse reaction to that so much so that they end up reading the Gospels. And this morning's text has those things. And it's easy to get caught into those, and it's easy to gloss over and kind of forget about this long reading that we had. But I want, just for a minute, to invite you into this story. Quite frankly, it's a story that I didn't really realize was, uh, had the power that it did until I sat with it for a little while about this idea of grief and what it looked like. Because we had this uh, obscure character, Rizpah, and Rizpah is, just to tell you a long story short of what would happened within that scripture, basically Rizpah's husband, she was one of the concubines, a low-level concubine of Saul who was a king of Israel. And David who came in after the king of uh, King Saul, you know, David tr- is trying to figure out in this moment how he can end a three-year famine that had taken place in the kingdom. And so he goes to God and he says, God, what can I do? And then God tells David, that there is this blood guilt, there's the land itself carries the guilt of the ancestors in the past. Because Saul was supposed to spare this group of people called the Gibeonites, but he didn't. And so in his zeal for power, or whatever the Bible tried to say it was, that Saul did this wrong to this people and the land remembers it. And now that this three-year famine is, God says that the people have been wronged and something needs to be made right. And so David goes to this people, the Gibeonites, and talks to them and barters with them. What can we do for the pain of the past? And then he, they decide, well, we're going to gather up some of Saul's children and then we're going to, well, kill them. And so Rizpah there is stuck in the midst of all of that mess, of a nation straight trying to make amends for the wrong of its past. And then there she goes up onto the mountainside to grieve. But the grief takes on a a bigger level than we can imagine, not just the level of losing her son, but also remember that she lost her livelihood when Saul had died. And her status from low-level concubine probably got even worse. And so her boys were all she had. And then there they were hanging. And she was unable to do anything for them. And in ancient Near Eastern culture, one of the kind of the ends of the circle of life is to end with one's ancestors. To bring your remains into what would be called bone boxes, bone houses, and to lay to rest. But they were unable to do that because they were to hang and to stay there. And then they were unable to go with Saul because Saul himself was not even buried in the land of Israel. He had been taken. And so there Rizpah was, and she stood in that moment of pain, and she wailed, She did what was traditional in the time and put a sackcloth over herself and she grieved and she cried. And she didn't just do it for a day. She didn't just do it for a week. She did it likely for months from the beginning of the harvest to the end when the rain would come, which could have been two to six months depending on the season and the year. Day after day, night after night, she would protect the remains of her children fighting off the birds and fighting off the animals, just in perhaps some sense of a hope that they might find rest. See, in this story that was written long ago, that seemed like an obscure reading, the more I reflect it and the more I read on it, the more I realize how much it can resonate with us. Nation states making amends for wrongs of the past, but two wrongs, not making a right. Public mourning that then gets the attention of the king who then tries to make amends. See, I think we see in the story of Rizpah, we see in the story grief on a number of levels. You have this continual grief of the Gibbonites Gibeonites, and you have this kind of the imminent example of grief and the loss of Rizpah's children, and then you also have this uncertainty of the future, of a lack of completeness, of, of knowing that it can never go back to the way it was, and it will always be different, and it may not be the way that we see good to be. I think it's crazy that the the people who put together this Unraveled series included this specific scripture and they did it a year ago because it seems so poignant for us today. That in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis and pandemic, we feel more unraveled than ever and that this story, which most of us probably didn't even know was in the Bible, can speak to us about grief and about public grief. I mean, as I was reflecting, I, I couldn't not help but hear the Black Lives Matters movement and Rizpa's length of stay on the mountaintop and grieving alongside each other. And I could hear the same refrains that people probably were saying to Rizpah. Move on. It's over. What's past is past. Why are you staying up there so long? Move on. It's over. Civil rights was years ago. Why are we still lingering on it? Okay, we get the point. But it's in the midst of that permanence, that staying on the mountaintop, that some sense of healing comes. And similarly, I think that that speaks to the Black Lives Matters movement that is in the midst of as they, con- they continued to grieve publicly, it was able to show kind of the community around the pain. And, and uh, we were able to do things that we probably wouldn't have done. Like our church would not have done a white fragility book study that we're doing right now. We wouldn't have engaged in that conversation had it not been for the public displays of grief. And one of the mantras that kind of comes up within that is that the idea that it's not going to make it right and we're grippled with the reality that this is a systemic issue that we can't change. But something about the naming of the grief can bring a sense of healing. something about naming and proclaiming what has been wrong and why it hurts brings a sense of resolve or might motivate us to do that resolve, might bring public action. And I know that's a macro level, but during this time, so many of us have experienced our own griefs as well on personal levels. If you haven't been one that's experienced the grief and pain of racism, surely during this time you've experienced some sense of grief and pain. Perhaps it's that growing one where you don't even know how to name it. Perhaps it's that you weren't married when you wanted to be married or you weren't able to have children when you wanted to have children. Or perhaps it's that life is slowing down and not speeding up and technology is just getting out of control and faster and you can't keep up with it. Or maybe it's been an event. Maybe you've lost your job during this time. Maybe you've lost a loved one. And that grief is there. Or maybe it's just the uncertainty and the isolation and what's going to happen next. To, you know, how will your kids go off to school when you're hybrid or online? That good is not going to look good the way you had hoped. I know for many people, they keep telling us in the church world that we can't go back to the way things was and the way things were. And that, that's something that brings fear and grief in a lot of people because it means that something's going to change and something's going to look different. But we loved what was in the past. And so we find ourselves standing on the mountaintop with rispah. Grieving. But we live in a society that tells us we're supposed to pick ourselves up by the bootstraps and move on and brush it under the carpet. Those who have lost a spouse know the pain. As the year goes on and the pain doesn't go away, but everyone around you thinks you gotta know get back to normal. Or the loss of a career. Or a dream. I know that in times of pain for me, telling me that I needed to get over it, which is a mantra I've heard, or that God will never give you more than you can handle, or just give it some time, those times did not, those words did not make me feel better in those moments. But we have a long history throughout the Bible, a long uh, plethora of scripture that help communicate to us the power of expressing our pains. We have Psalms that lament. We have an entire book called Lamentations. We have Ecclesiastes that's not too bright. And we have all sorts of other scriptures as well. Even Jesus himself cries out to God, take this cup away from me. And my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that doesn't mean that you are not faithful if you grieve. It doesn't mean that you are lacking in faith or lacking because you have doubt or lacking because you don't have this optimistic, cherry-eyed view of the future. It means you are Human. And what we know, just like last week when we thought about the story of Peter walking on water, that God is always walking to us, what we know is that nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even that pain and that grief that you carry with you. Nothing, literally nothing can separate you. So what is that grief that you're carrying? How do you find yourself on that mountaintop with Rizpa? Not so you can move beyond it, but so you can name it and you can give it to God and you can perhaps bring about some sense of healing, even if it's not the way you imagined. That's what we're going to invite you to do in a little bit, is we're going to invite you to light a candle and name a grief might not make it better. In fact, it probably won't. But we'll name it together. And while those of us who might feel isolated will know that you are not alone, that together we're in this and that God is always with us. And so I'm going to invite you to uh, see this image of Rizpah. That the sanctified art women created. And as the praise band makes their way up, and uh, they're going to lead us in a song before we do our prayers of the people that incorporate the candle lighting, I want you just for a moment to see the image of Rizpah. It is not a pleasant one by any means. But that's the thing about grief it's messy, it's unraveled, it's uncertain. It hurts. One of the most powerful images that I could ever imagine is the image of the crucified Christ. Also one of the most painful things you could imagine. That there on the cross, Christ suffered and cried out pain and isolation there on that mountaintop, Rizpa cried out pain and isolation. What is that pain and grief that you carry? Let us name it and let us give it to God. I invite you to pray with me. Gracious and loving God, Life is not always magical and full of rainbows. And in a society where we're told we can't dwell on the past or linger when we're down, we pray that we might find a space to express our grief just like Rizpa. And as we proclaim that to you, perhaps even proclaim it to the world around us, that we will know that we are not alone, that you are always with us and that we are in this together. And perhaps then we might be able to sing back to you. It is well with my soul. Amen.